0: Welcome to The Middle Way. I'm Dr. Matthew Goodman, a clinical psychologist and clinical assistant professor at the University of Southern California. This podcast is about bridging the divide between human beings and discovering innovative and practical solutions to the world's problems based on the principles of interconnectedness, common humanity, and radical compassion. Thank you so much for being here. I'm recording this on Tuesday, March 15th. Right now, we're about more than two weeks into the war between Russia and Ukraine. Thousands of people have been killed, including hundreds of civilians, if not more. Two million, perhaps three million refugees by now have abandoned their homes their jobs, their families, their friends, in the beloved country they grew up in. Here at The Middle Way, we're interested in what works. Our approach to solving problems is rooted in deep pragmatism, meaning that we take an honest look at what exactly would reduce human suffering, putting aside predisposed ideologies, And beliefs. And this, to some degree, requires stepping aside from our attachment to personal identity or group affiliation. At the end of the day, it means seeing the world through the lenses of interconnectedness, common humanity, and radical compassion. Viewing the world in this way inherently promotes a pragmatic approach. Because we're not swayed by intoxicating ideologies which serve to divide, we're free to focus simply on what works, on what specific actions reduce the most human suffering. Compassionate awareness paves the way for pragmatic action. This is the Middle Way Approach. You may not agree with some or maybe all of my opinions in this podcast, and keep in mind that I'm obviously not a politician nor a political scientist nor anything of that caliber. What I hope to do here is to spark some new thought and discussion about ways of bringing a compassionate heart to the situation such that We can focus on finding more pragmatic ways of dealing with the world's problems in particular serving the ukrainians at this particular point in time thank you so much for listening okay so the first thing i want to do is just step back and examine the narratives that we're hearing right now about the russia ukraine conflict One of the dominant stories that's being told is that Putin has imperialistic ambitions to bring back the former Soviet Union. This story says that regardless of the behavior of the West or other countries, it's only a matter of time until Putin attempts to overthrow the Ukrainian government and eventually expand Russia's influence even further into the West. Some of this may be true, and maybe all of it is true. I don't really know Putin's ambitions, unfortunately. But rallying around this perspective, I believe, is dangerous, and I want to explain why. It seems like we've increasingly lost context in this conflict. And as a Western society, we're coalescing around. One particular goal or storyline defeat the enemy, defeat Putin. While this could be energizing and even unite people in the West, I think it will ultimately only serve to divide the world further. And it could lead us, therefore, closer to nuclear war. I think all of us would like to avoid that. If we're only looking at this conflict from one side from one perspective, and we fail to look at the broader context and how everything is interconnected, we may fail to gain a more accurate and even self-protective appreciation for why Putin's doing what he's doing and what exactly to do to stop it. At the very least, it's wise from a strategic standpoint to understand the perspective of one's enemy. And I trust that our most intelligent officials and leaders have done and continue to do their jobs and understanding these different perspectives towards this conflict. I hope at least that they can articulate why Putin is so upset, even if it is completely irrational and evil. That being said, I'm starting to feel more anxious about this based on what we're hearing from leadership and based on the storyline that's being portrayed in media, it increasingly seems like we're all buying into a particular story that intentionally or unintentionally is projecting certain intentions onto Putin, onto the other side. Ultimately, this story is the same intoxicating story that we've continued to fall into the same trap that we've been falling into especially over the past several years this is the story of us versus them a very basic tribal story that becomes increasingly tempting and intoxicating for us this is what i worry about as tempting as it is to fall into a tribal stance get ready to fight us versus them defeat the enemy this will unfortunately just set us up for greater conflict, more conflict than I think that we truly want. And I'm afraid that somehow we're all co-conspiring in ways that are probably beyond our conscious awareness, but in ways that are deeply rooted within us, co-conspiring to create this narrative, putting ourselves into a position of more conflict. And a little bit later in the episode, we'll explore why this might be the case. But before we break down this us versus them story, let me first just go back and try to challenge this first narrative that Putin's imperialistic desires alone explain his decision to invade Ukraine. As I said, the reasons why he's doing this are less important than the pragmatic solutions that should be taken, which we'll get into a little bit later. But it's important for us to understand the context of this, because understanding the context helps us figure out and see clearly what we could potentially do about it. So let me provide a little bit of context, at least from my very limited and naive perspective. The story that Putin's imperialistic desires are the the primary driver of his decision to invade Ukraine is easily challenged. We can do away with that, I think, pretty quickly. It's true that he might have some of these ambitions, but the story actually deserves much more context than that, and many of us fail to appreciate how we got into this position that we're in now. Ukraine has been at the center of an East-West tug-of-war for several years now. Russia and Putin have long grieved the loss of Ukraine from its former union. As you know, Ukraine has been essentially neutral to this point. While some in the eastern regions identify as Russian and would prefer a reunion with their former countrymen, others in the west of Ukraine have identified more with progressive Western values and actually yearn to join the West, as we're well aware. But the U.S. has not been neutral in this fight. The U.S., for reasons that are obvious, prefers to see Ukraine become more Westernized. In fact, the US and our European allies have explicitly put forward the idea of Ukraine becoming part of NATO. For example, at a summit in 2008, NATO considered admitting both Georgia and Ukraine. The Bush administration at the time openly supported this, but France and Germany opposed this idea for fear that it might antagonize Russia. And NATO ultimately decided not to admit these countries, but issued a statement at the time that endorsed the aspirations of Georgia and Ukraine to eventually become members of of NATO. As you can probably anticipate and well understand, Russia sees the expansion of NATO into Eastern Europe as an existential threat to itself. we know that NATO was created as a defensive organization in order to prevent Soviet expansion into Europe after the Second World War. In 1990, the US Secretary of State James Baker met with Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev and famously proclaimed that promised that NATO would not move, quote, one inch eastward. And yet what we've seen is that NATO has continued to encroach into the East and there are legitimate reasons to do so and legitimate reasons for those newcomers to NATO to want to be part of this alliance. Still, though, whether this expansion is an actual threat to Russia or whether Russia is simply paranoid about this expansion being a threat, one has to be able to understand how this would be perceived how this would be perceived by Putin. This is the important point. It turns out that France and Germany in 2008 were right. The aspirations of Georgia and Ukraine to join NATO did provoke Russian antagonism. Putin invaded Georgia in 2008, undoubtedly to make his point about preventing NATO expansion. Despite doing this, after 2008, both NATO and the EU have continued to stretch out eastward in many different ways. And a lot has happened in these intervening years, way more than I can even attempt to understand. But needless to say that in 2014, as we're well aware, we hit another breaking point. Around this time, the West was involved in helping to oust a Russian-friendly leader in Ukraine and replace it with a pro-Western anti-Russian government and all the stuff that we're hearing now about Nazis this and Nazis that there were neo-Nazis at the time that helped to push the country in the opposite direction towards the West that was supported by the West in a way so there was basically a marriage of convenience between pro-Western liberals in Ukraine and the neo-Nazis for the sake of expelling the pro-Russian tendencies of Ukrainians And then in 2014, as we know, Russia began the annexation of Crimea after this provocation. So these series of tactical events should be clear. The political scientist and also professor at the University of Chicago, John Mearsheimer, wrote about the 2014 crisis where he said, quote, Putin's actions should be easy to comprehend. Washington may not like Moscow's position, but it should understand the logic behind it. This is geopolitics 101. Great powers are always sensitive to potential threats near their home territory. After all, the United States does not tolerate distant great powers, deploying military forces anywhere in the Western Hemisphere, much less on its borders. Imagine the outrage in Washington, he goes on to say, if China built an impressive military alliance and tried to include Canada and Mexico in it. Logic aside, Russian leaders have told their Western counterparts on many occasions that they consider NATO expansion into Georgia and Ukraine unacceptable, along with any effort to turn those countries against Russia, Russia, a message that the 2008 Russian-Georgian war also made crystal clear. All of this could have been enough to ignite a full-blown takeover of Ukraine by Putin were that to reflect his imminent desires. Instead, his actions can be interpreted more as a warning signal at the time. Still, though, for reasons that, whether it was for reasons of our own expansionist ambitions or simply paranoia about Putin's expansionist ambitions, we have continued to engage in per se, in behaviors that we can all agree can at least be perceived as provocatory. Again, whether this is rational or not. We know that this will be perceived as provocatory and potentially escalatory into more conflict. Whether or not our behaviors to protect or to prevent Russian aggression or expansion or to move further into these, whether or not this is justified is one question. Whether or not they would provoke a leader who is arguably paranoid and thus bring us closer to conflict and nuclear war is another point to contend with. All of this, at the end of the day, does not serve the Ukrainian people. The reality is that they're neighbors to a very powerful and aggressive country, and unconsciously or consciously we've helped guide them into a place of greater danger. Many people have understood the dangers of putting Ukraine in this position. Noam Chomsky, for example, one of our most celebrated public intellectuals, stated, the idea that Ukraine might join a Western military alliance would be quite unacceptable to any Russian leader. He goes on to say that Ukraine's desire to join NATO is not protecting Ukraine, is threatening Ukraine with major war. Here's a clip of, again, Mearsheimer talking in 2015 about putting Ukraine in this position is that the West is leading Ukraine down the primrose path, and the end result is that Ukraine is going to get wrecked. And I believe that the policy that I'm advocating, which is neutralizing Ukraine and then building it up economically and getting it out of the competition between Russia on one side and NATO on the other side, is the best thing that could happen to the Ukrainians. What we're doing is encouraging the Ukrainians to play tough with the Russians. We're encouraging the Ukrainians to think that they will ultimately become part of the West, because we will ultimately defeat Putin, and we will ultimately get our way. Time is on our side. All of this eventually leads us to today based on the historical landscape of this conflict, one has to be able to see the other side. Now, doing this is not to defend Putin or even sympathize with him. As Biden said, the decision to invade a foreign country was Putin's choice. He chose this. He decided to do this. The blood is on his hands. I'm always in favor of choosing the more peaceful method over the more aggressive method in any situation, no matter what the causes are, because that's the most practical way to decrease human suffering. I choose a solution that leads to less loss of life and less suffering, but Putin didn't choose that. Still it's vitally important to understand the historical and the present context of this because it points a way to how exactly we can get out of this, and what this what the path might be out of this horrific crisis. So part of the present context is that Putin has put some demands on the table, and part this is both related to the historical context as well, but this is where we find ourselves right now, based on this historical context. Putin has said that he's willing to halt military operations, quote, in a moment, end quote, or at least his negotiators have said that. If Ukraine meets illicit conditions, these conditions are essentially that Ukraine agrees not to join NATO, in addition to acknowledging Crimea as Russian territory, and recognizing the separatist regions of Donetsk and Lugansk as independent states. The former criteria assuring that Ukraine remains neutral, I think, seems reasonable and palatable even to a hawkish mind the latter two criteria I'm not really so sure how to feel about. But at the end of the day, it comes down to this. What do we need to do right now to stop the suffering and the loss of human life? This is where pragmatism comes in. What would happen if we were to agree to Putin's demands or perhaps negotiate simply that Ukraine does not become a member of NATO, which I think is already something that Ukraine, Ukraine's Zelensky has mentioned or is considering. Let's just say hypothetically that that made all of this stop. Would you do it? Would we do it? Look, I can already anticipate and I actually share the feelings that come up around this. First, it makes the US and the West look weak. It makes us look like we've succumbed to Putin's aggression, and in a sense, he would Win the battle, and that's not good. And I can see that. But at what cost do we not accept these terms? At what cost do we continue to proliferate the loss of lives in Ukraine? Again, this is where pragmatism comes in. The second obvious counter argument is that succumbing to Putin's demands will only embolden him that he's not gonna stop there. And if we let him get away with this, then he'll continue to push even further into the West. This is certainly a legitimate fear, but what's the evidence for that right now? Moscow says, these are my demands. If you meet them, we'll stop. So why couldn't we actually put them to the test? If they don't stop, then we have a reason to build up an even stronger NATO alliance that includes Ukraine or other Eastern countries. But without that, We're actually giving giving Putin even more reason to push forward into the West, not less of a reason. That's how it looks right now. That's the reality on the ground. What we're doing is not working. What we're doing is provoking. Here's the thing. We're worried that if we capitulate, Putin will keep going. But Putin is already going. If we want to ensure that he continues with aggression and continues to move west, then all we have to do is to continue to fight and escalate and provoke more conflict. That will assure aggression based on the behavior that we're seeing right now, pragmatically, not the other way around. How do we make him get out? How do we make the Russians go away? Declare Ukraine as neutral, not the opposite. If we assume that we're dealing with an irrational actor, we can only assume that he'll double down the deeper in the hole that he gets, just like a gambler in the hole. Putin's only way out is to risk even more of a bet, is to risk even more catastrophe. He wants a way out, and I believe we want a way out as well. And unless we plan to go ahead and topple his government, we both need to figure out a way for both of us to get out of this mess. I know it's not palatable, For both sides take a step back and go back to the way things were but what other choice do we have do we continue to escalate and face possible nuclear war the people suffering the most out of all this are the ukrainians we need to stop the war we need to choose pragmatism we need to put down ideology and do what works right now for the sake of minimizing suffering. Now the third rebuttal to this point is that by claiming neutrality, that we'd be ignoring or not supporting the will of the Ukrainian people. Some would say that blaming this situation on the West ignores Ukraine's own internal desires to be independent and to join the West on their own. To that I say, first, Ukraine itself is split over whether it wants to join the West. And second, even if the country was united in this, it still ignores the historical reality. The reality is that Ukraine sits on the border of Russia, becoming a Western or NATO country, whether they intend to or not, would be a provocative move. Let's just assume that Putin is a paranoid, irrational actor. Why would we want to provoke a madman who's going to act irrationally? In the best case scenario, Ukraine could still become more westernized, be a democracy and have democratic values and be independent. It simply needs to assure, however, that it's not an expansion of NATO and will not contain weapons, that would be a direct threat to its former and still bitter estranged brother, Russia. Now, we can hope that this will change in the future. We can hope that Putin is replaced by someone else, by someone who's more peaceful, more of a peacemaker. But right now, this is the geopolitical reality on the ground. And at the expense of our ideologies, if our first principles are to save life and decrease suffering, then we need to do what works right now. I came across someone called Yanis Varoufakis on a podcast the other day. He's a Greek economist and politician and Greece's former minister of finance. He helps lead the Democracy in Europe movement, which is a left-wing political party. He shares his first and foremost instinct around this situation, which I share. He says, when a country or region is invaded, I'm overcome by one duty to take the side of the people facing troops. And he goes on to say, today we must stand with Ukraine unconditionally, and we must say it out loud. Putin is a war criminal whose campaign sits in the same category as the Hitler-Stalin invasion of Poland or the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003. No ifs, no buts. Our task must be one, to help Ukrainians gain their independence against a ruthless invader. I think most people share this sentiment. But when it comes to finding a solution, when it comes to serving these principles, when it comes to serving our main duty, which is to protect the Ukrainian people, we have to think pragmatically about how to do that. So Yanis goes on to write, to help the Ukrainians find a path forward, I'm sorry, a path towards peace and freedom, we must also choose to put their interests above our ideologies and fixations. I'm a left-winger, he writes, but while people in the Ukraine are dying, I do not have the right to focus on whether the economic ideology or political biases of President Zelensky are to my liking. I must support him to the extent that Ukrainians are looking to him for leadership now, period. And I hope that those whose politics differ from mine do likewise, place the task of pushing Ukrainian troops out of Ukraine above their ideological preferences, e.g. Ukraine not being a nato or an eu member i'm going to continue on here because um, i think this is so relevant and such a great way of framing the situation so Yanis he goes on to say to help ukrainians stop the carnage and breathe again the only question that i need to ask myself is how do we get the russian troops to withdraw This is the question I have a duty to focus on. Any other questions must wait. We know how Russian troops will not withdraw. NATO will not come to push them back. There won't even be a no-fly zone over Ukraine, despite President Zelensky's understandable pleading. And that sounds like a betrayal of Ukrainians, but it is not. Escalating the war by pitching nuclear armed combatants against each other in the heart of Europe is a sure way of destroying humanity end quote so i want to leave us with that thought before moving on to the next segment whatever your beliefs are i also urge you to think about the situation pragmatically ukrainians are suffering unimaginable hunger thirst physical and emotional pain right now let's put our ideas aside And decide to get them out of this mess let's do what minimizes human suffering let's do what works when we come back we'll examine this from the larger perspective of what's happening in the world's own consciousness be right back well i have given my two cents for whatever they're worth probably no more than a value of two cents on this topic and really dove into the nitty-gritty details of this um, situation but now also consistent with the middle way perspective i want to step back and examine this from the broader perspective of what is happening in the world and how can we understand this from a perspective of interconnectedness and unity and radical compassion and collective consciousness. So The question I have is that, and I think that many of us share, is that why in the world does it seem like we're heading towards the end of the world, towards a third world war? Why is there so much crisis and calamity? cropping up right now we're just getting over to the other side of the covid situation it seems like and now just as we're getting over that there seems to be a brand new and potentially potentially more insidious and scarier threat that we're facing in the world right now why why is something worse cropping up if you've listened to other Middleway podcasts you know how i tend to view symptoms Symptoms are an invitation for us to change course. They're an invitation to grow, to evolve, to learn. They're an opportunity to develop more compassionate awareness of whatever is being inflicted, wherever our wounds are. And in the case of our collective humanity, the symptoms that we are experiencing are an invitation to bring compassionate awareness to our common humanity and to our interconnectedness. To the degree that we fail to do that, we continue to experience symptoms. So symptoms on the individual level, as far as inviting this compassionate awareness, are no different than symptoms on the collective level. That's what they're asking for. And that's what they're prompting us to develop. We're now facing a symptom that's even bigger, as I've said, than the prior one, which was the pandemic. We're being asked, we're being pleaded with to do something different. We're being pleaded with from the world to wake up to something, to pay attention to something. We're not getting something right here. COVID attempted to do the same thing. That was a pretty a pretty significant one, pretty large one. There was a lot of suffering associated with that. And I'm speaking in the past tense, it's still, people are still suffering. How did we handle that opportunity, that symptom? By many accounts, we seem to have become even more divided. In, in some situations, we're so divided now that even things like medicine and public health have become tribal and political. So we're not recognizing the purpose of the symptom. In fact, the symptom itself is doubling down, forcing us, becoming even more of an irritant to awaken to something. When we don't recognize a symptom and when we don't change our behavior, it causes more irritation and inflames the physical or the psychological or the social fibers that it's attacking. When we don't recognize the symptom, it becomes even worse to gain our attention. So perhaps the inflammatory social and political and even economic world that we're living in now is pushing us to a point that we might not be able to stand the pain any longer. How far does it have to go? Does it have to get to the point of potential or actual nuclear catastrophe? the point where we could actually be eradicated? Is that what it's going to take for us to hopefully wake up to our shared humanity and see the people on the other side of this issue that we're fighting? How severe does the symptom have to be for us to wake up? Every symptom is an opportunity to do this. I think that perhaps unconsciously we know that we need something bigger, something more severe in order to help us complete this task that we know deep down in our hearts and in our souls, that we must fulfill collectively. And I hate to say that, but at some level, it seems like we're moving towards the conflict or drawn to it. Why? It's like someone who is drawn to negative, emotions or physical pain or addiction. It's like we want to hit rock bottom. Why? Collectively, why? Why do we want to hit rock bottom? Because we want to wake up. We want, and we know that the world needs to change as it is. We know that the way that we're living is no longer sustainable. We're asking for chaos because we know that we must create new order. But it's important to keep in mind that we don't necessarily need complete chaos and destruction in that form in order to create new order. Systems can reorganize, including the collective system of human beings. Systems can reorganize by paying attention adapting, that's also a form of chaos. It doesn't necessarily mean actual destruction. We just need to break down the rigid order that exists physically, psychologically, spiritually in the world. And the thing that that order is broken up by, or the solution that it dissolves in, is awareness. Compassionate awareness of our symptoms. So we need to bring compassionate awareness and we need to recognize our shared humanity, even in our enemies. So this, this form of chaos, this form of psychological destruction, of breaking down the way that we perceive ourselves in the world right now. This would be an alternative path to reorganizing our system into new order. When we don't pay attention, we don't bring compassionate awareness to our situation, then chaos and symptoms and destruction continue to ensue in order to grab our attention. This crisis in the world has certainly highlighted our divisions that have already been highlighted, especially over the past couple of years. And I worry that war, more and more we're organizing more into teams, we're coalescing into teams, now east versus west, and even within our respective eastern and western spheres, pro or anti war, or pro or anti this or that. COVID, unfortunately, wasn't enough for us to see that we're all on the same team. We need something more severe. So perhaps the enemy isn't the person or the people on the other side of this battle. Perhaps the enemy that we're fighting, the real task here that we have to fight together is the illusion of separateness. The real enemy is ego. Thank you so much again for listening. Remember that subscribing, rating, and reviewing the podcast is very much appreciated and I look forward to seeing you on the next episode.